crossbar heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this privilege of being here this evening. Thank you for truth that sets us free. Thank you for keeping this building open so that we can worship you in this special way by taking in the very bread of life that is the Word of God. Father, we pray for those in the congregation that are ill, that need comfort, that are in need in any way, shape, or form at this point. Father, we just pray for them. We ask that you return them to the fold in your good timing, of course. We pray also for those that are still lost in this world without hope, that they be humbled, repent, and receive saving faith. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt, and to make an evening like this a possibility for all of us to enjoy and rejoice in. We do just ask for your blessings on this message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. <clears throat> Again, part 62, Proverbs 17, Wisdom. A few moving parts tonight, so hopefully you brought your thinking caps. Uh, we are just about ready to move on in our primary course of study now. Um, as a sort of prolonged unexpected, frankly, sidebar, we've been asked by the Spirit to ponder a lot of aspects regarding discipline, whether personal in our families or wherever. And we've learned that God's discipline is a very good thing. Up here on the board, Hebrews 10, or it's 12, 10, part B says it very simply, God disciplines us for our good, that we may share His Holiness, clearly stated doctrine in Holy Writ. God disciplines us for our good that we may share His holiness. To complement this ongoing theme, the theme of this last week's blog was this up here on the board. The blog title was Righteousness Implies Being Right. Here's an excerpt. Once a person understands their depravity, they are set free from the charade of maintaining self-righteousness. In fact, this is why a humble person gladly throws up their arms and asks for deliverance from their Creator out of fear and respect for Him. Again, this is why a humble person gladly throws up their arms and ask for deliverance from their Creator out of fear and respect for Him. And remember, Proverbs 1 7 reads, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So the point of the blog was a person who has shown their depravity in the Word of God and then refuses to accept it. Well, if you think about all we've learned regarding discipline, then you quickly realize that rejecting God's good counsel on anything is a recipe for disaster. 
if you refuse his counsel on anything, it's a recipe for disaster. More theologically stated, rejecting God's will is, by definition, disobedience. So if we have the word, we have something, we have an object, we have something to orient to. So theologically speaking, rejecting God's will, which is present in the word of God, by definition is disobedience. And disobedience in any format warrants discipline. So that's these two things coming together. Disobedience in any format warrants discipline. The idea then is to be right, to be righteous. So a person who rejects that they are depraved even as a sinner is, guess what? Going to be disciplined. A person who rejects that they are depraved or a depraved sinner is going to be disciplined. And this is why the Spirit had me write last week's blog. Again, righteousness implies being right. That's the whole idea. That you are rightly oriented to God's will. That's what righteousness means. I mean, he's perfect. We have to orient to him. Once a person understands their depravity, they are set free from the charade of maintaining self-righteousness. In fact, this is why a humble person gladly throws up their arms and asks for deliverance from their creator out of fear and respect for him, a la Proverbs 1.7. A fool does otherwise. And I was thinking about that, the fear and respect aspect of the point on the board implies obedience. As I've taught in the past, obedience is a function of those whom we fear and respect. We don't, as humans, we don't obey people we don't fear or respect. We obey those we fear and respect. We follow those we trust. And in the sense of God, we fear him. Which follows the lines of the following passage. Go to Luke 12, 4. Luke 12, verse 4. So we obey those we fear. You might even say we obey the most those we fear the most. Is that fair? Right? I mean, let's face it. If, if I walk up to you with a twig and go, if you don't obey me, I'm going to hit you. And then Scott comes up with a two-by-four. Who are you going to obey? Right? There you go. It's pretty simple math, actually. Luke 12:4. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more than that they can do. That's the twig, by the way. Relatively speaking, that's the twig. But I will warn you whom to fear. Here comes the two by four. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. I was having a conversation with some folks today about the fact that the gospel is indeed, and I think we forget this, the gospel is a command. 
the good news about Jesus Christ, believe in the Lord Jesus, is a command. So, it makes total sense that if a person disobeys the primary command in the Bible, that is, believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that their disobedience warrants the wrath of God. This is why unbelievers are called the sons of disobedience. Why do you think that is? Is it because just because they act like buffoons? No. It's because they're obeying the primary command in the Bible, which is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 5, 6. The truth is that these unbelievers, we trace it backwards now, these unbelievers lack respect and fear of the Lord, which, according to Proverbs, is the epitome of foolishness. If you're going to respect or fear anyone, it ought to be God. Otherwise, you're a fool. Again, obedience is a function of those whom we fear and respect. So, if God commands that we believe in Jesus Christ, then chances are those who fear Him, a la Luke 12.5, will ultimately believe. Right? That's what we just learned. Fear the one who can send you to hell. You might want to listen to God. That kind of fear drives someone to repentance and salvation. Those who disrespect the Lord God, especially regarding the preeminent command to obey the gospel, remain under his wrath. Go to John 3.36. John 3.36. Again, this is all part of a conversation I had today worth sharing. John 3.36. What does it say? It says, whoever believes, John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Do you see the connective tissue between disobedience and wrath here? Do you see that believing in Jesus Christ is the actual command in view? In other words, the disobedience is related directly to disbelief. That's what we see here. And therefore, because of that disobedience, that disbelief, that disobeying the command to believe, those people are under the wrath of God because of their disobedience to the gospel, to the command to believe. To help drive this home, here are the other two verses I exchanged during the recent conversation I was having regarding God's command to believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Go to 1 John 3.23. 1 John 3.23. 1 John 3. It doesn't get much straighter than this verse on this topic, I don't think. 1 John 3.23. <clears throat> ready? Nice and simple. And this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, 
and love one another just as he has commanded us. Any questions? Right? I mean, that's pretty straightforward. This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Now, that's going to come circling back in about 20 minutes or so when we talk about abiding in commandments and love, because it's all right there again. The preeminent command is to believe, and that is intrinsic to love. We'll get back to that in a moment. But anyways, 1 John 3.23 is, I mean, it's pretty plainly stated scripture, right? We love this because it makes our lives really easy. I like that it's a command. As a matter of fact, I love, I adore that it's a command. Because there's no escape. There's no lawyering after the fact. You follow what I'm getting at? Oh, you know, someone's at the throne saying, oh, but you didn't, you didn't, you didn't ask me enough. You didn't, you know, you didn't, you didn't push hard enough. You didn't, no, 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 no. I commanded you to believe and you disobeyed. End of story. You see? You didn't convince me enough. Nope, nope, nope. I commanded you. That's all that's required. And you chose to say no. You chose to reject the command in the face of my spirit. There's no gray area. Do you get it? I love that. I love it. it makes life simple, especially as evangelists. When you go to evangelize someone, don't apologize. Don't be all like, oh, will you please? That drives me berserk. I'm like, no, you're talking about you're representing the sovereign, holy God of the universe. You better tell him the truth. Say, this is what he commands. He commands that we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our job. So, I don't know. We, I mean, I love it because it makes life easy, especially when you're evangelizing. And it also shows how simple the gospel truth is and how righteous God is in commanding we believe it. But... As it came out in that discussion, I keep referring back to, you know, thankfully God is patient with us. Amen? It is a command, but thank God He doesn't just give us one shot or one, you know, couple of years. <laughs> I mean, as obvious as it is, it usually takes people a while to repent of their self-life to be willing to give it up. It takes a while. It takes a bit getting used to. We call that the conversion process, right? That's Matthew 13. That's the, the parable of the soils. Some people get really close and then they're gone. Right? Some people get really close and they get choked out. And then some people take it all the way because the soil's just right. You follow? And so it, this conversion thing takes a while. And thank God for God's patience. Go to 2 Peter 3, 9. 2 Peter 3, verse 9. Thank God for His patience. Second <clears throat> Peter 3, verse 9. 
The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He's patient while He waits for us to repent. Thank God. Again, all of this is a quick refresher on the simple fact that believing in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is indeed a command. It's a command. And those who choose to reject this command are indeed disobedient by definition. Fair enough? I mean, they're disobedient to the preeminent command to believe in Jesus Christ. They are disobedient because they lack fear and respect for God. They apparently seem to brush off the fact that eternal misery in hell, separation from God, isn't something to be too concerned about. Eh, maybe he can, maybe, you know, maybe he has that power, maybe he doesn't. Maybe God exists, maybe he doesn't. Maybe I maybe Jesus was the Savior, maybe he was. Ah, whatever. You know. And I was thinking about that. And already my soul is getting a little bit agitated. I was thinking about pop culture today. I mean, how often do we hear people say, sometimes on the big screen, television, sometimes just in passing, oh, well, I guess I'll be seeing you in hell, my friend. Right? Like, all flippant. You know? And it's like followed by some snide remark, you know, like, like a, a virtual toast. Guess I'll be seeing you in hell, huh? Dude, what are you talking about? Do you know what you're saying? Do you really know what you're saying? I mean, it turns my stomach thinking about that. The, the utter, the audacity, the disrespect. It's not only grotesquely disrespectful, but worse, I suppose, in some ways, for, the, for that person, infinitely injurious to those making the toast. They're injuring themselves. They're hurting themselves in a way they, I don't know, I'm going to have to go with, I don't think they totally get it, you know. I don't know. I mean, but nonetheless, it's straight up mocking the holy, sovereign God of the universe. Their own creator, nonetheless. So let's just spend a little bit more time on this. Let's read an excerpt from one of Jesus' brothers, Jude, who penned the book after his name. The context here is that Jude was refuting surging Gnosticism. Remember, remember Gnosticism? It's all about knowledge, right? That's from that Greek root. Uh, I think it's uh, gnos, right? Gnosticism, knowledge. It's all about this higher knowledge, that whole thing. And he was refuting this surge in the church of Gnosticism, and it was leading people away. It was leading the whole church, in the, in the broad sense, towards apostasy. And by definition, apostasy, remember, means departure from true faith. It was this, this infection, this disease called Gnosticism was leading the whole church, if you can think of it that way, as a corporate body. It was leading the church astray towards apostasy. In other words, leave the truth behind 
for a lie. And that's what, was, that's what Jude was fighting against in context. And I was thinking about that. You know, there's often an identifiable reason for apostasy. For today, I, I mean, I see it with the lure of sexual sins um, or ungodly romantic relationships. That's what I see. Right, DJ? That's what I see. I mean, that's the big one. Sex and so-called romance. That's every time someone even comes close to the truth. And how many times have we seen people come through these doors and then now they're not here anymore? Why? Sexual sins, so-called romance, you know? Uh, they get so close and then they're gone. And then they're gone. They've tasted the truth. I, 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 I'm in horror to think that they might fall under Hebrews 6 doctrine where they've tasted, and then that's it. God just says, to hell with you. I literally convicted you, and you still said no. Have it your way then. That, that, that is awful for me to think about. But in Jude's time, it was Gnosticism that was pulling people away from the faith. And we might think of this in light of Jesus' parables that I alluded to earlier, the parable of the soils uh, in Matthew 13, maybe more specifically as the rocky soil. Up here on the board, Matthew 13, 20 to 21 reads, As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yay, right? Those are the people who came here for a while, as an example. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, looks the part, you know, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately falls away. I remember having a, 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 a relative come here one time. Or maybe it might have been to one of the weddings I, I did. Maybe it was Joey and Andrews, I can't remember. And um, the idea of, you know, no sex before marriage came up. And they were like, yeah, I don't buy that, I'm out. That was the reason. I can't live with that, I'm out of here. Really? That, so you have, you, so in other words, you, you know what I'm saying. It literally was, yeah, no, no, no. Here, here we go, you ready? God or sex? I choose sex. This same person would say to me before that, oh, this is awesome, I'm loving the word, you know, I, I love it when I hear the teaching, blah, blah, blah. As soon as that thing came on the scene, God who? No, that that no, I don't want that. You're basically saying I can't have, I can't keep this. I I, can't, I have to sacrifice my self life. I have to repent of this thing. Yeah, uh, you no. In any case, let's read Jude's words now on this topic of people actually mocking the holy sovereign God of the universe, which is tantamount to saying they are disobedient which, again, means they are under the wrath of God. Go to Jude 17. It's only one chapter, so if you want me to say it, Jude 1, 17? Is that better? <laughs> Jude 17, right before Revelation, right? Okay, but you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, remember the context here, He's fighting Gnosticism, right? He had a church that was doing well. 
and Gnosticism pulling it away, getting it to what we call apostatize, leave the actual true faith behind. So this is what he's fighting. They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. In other words, understand they are weak and try to help them to see the truth. Right? If you see a church apostatizing, or in an individual case, someone starts to loot. I mean, I try everything. Sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes it works. Sometimes, I was having that discussion with someone today, too, how, uh, how much evil is in the world and how, and I don't expect any, like, pity from you guys, but this job is 24-7. I don't know if you know that. Honest to goodness, it's 24-7. Even if I'm working, it doesn't matter. You guys are always in the back of my mind. You know what I'm saying? Who's haunting my congregation now? Who's trying to get my congregation now? Who's trying to have sex with members of my congregation now? Who's trying to do this now? Who's trying to pull my... Who's trying to bat their eyelashes now? Who is it now? Who's telling lies about the church, the pastor, the members, the leadership team? Who is it now? Darn it. Who is it now? Because you know what? It's always someone. It's always something. And if I, if I told you every time I, I saw a signal with the discernment I get with this spiritual gift, you guys would laugh at me. You'd say, come on. And I'd say, no, I can see it in your life. I can see it in your life. I can see it in your life. I can tell you where it's happening in your life. I can tell you where it's happening in your life. And you all would be like, stay away from me. <laughs> right? And it's that old thing. I just see a car wreck happening in slow motion. I can see it. But if I tell the person, they, they, they're like, dude, stop. And then I sit there and go, oh, do, do, do. Like, remember Jeopardy? Was it Jeopardy? I said, yeah, here he goes. No, no. Oh, what happened? (laughs) I saw that coming a year ago. Why didn't you? It's your life. Verse 23, save others by snatching them out of the fire. The others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Hate that thing. That flesh is nasty. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Love it. What's the Spirit saying here? I mean, why this emphasis on the gospel being a command in Holy Scripture. I know why. Minimally, it sets the stage. Do not miss this. I'm going to say it again. Why all this emphasis on the gospel being a command in Holy Scripture? Minimally, it sets the stage for all other doctrines in the Bible. 
minimally. We cannot underestimate the disaster of getting this wrong. Case in point, I threw out 1,400 hours of messages. 1,400 hours. If you multiply that by the number of hours on average it takes to prepare one of those bad Larrys, right? And then all the time I'm here prepping afterwards, you know, the whole routine, right? Hours and hours and hours for one hour. What are we at? I don't know. At least, right? Probably, yeah, probably somewhere in the order of 14,000 hours. Gone. That's how disastrous it can be if you get the gospel wrong. You may have to retract whole portions of your, your labor, your life even. You may have to go back to people you thought you evangelized and go, I'm sorry, but I at least have the humility to be here. I'm sorry, I got it wrong. I need to tell you the truth. I mean, I was wondering about this today. How many Christians know, know that God commands a person to believe in the gospel? How many Christians do you think actually know that? That it's a command to believe? Is it usually presented like that? Nope. Nope. Not even close. Not even close. I wonder how many Christians know that God commands a person to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I wonder how many evangelists let unbelievers know this very fact. I wonder how many people are led astray as a result or even purchase a lie that we might call, you know, the watered-down gospel. I guess the reason for it, why that it's acceptable, I guess, is so that it was because people, like, brush it off as semantics. They'll, they'll, they'll just sort of say, oh, no, no, it's just, it's semantics. It's not semantics. It's not the fact that the believe in the Lord Jesus Christ is a command. That is not semantics. Do you get it? It's not semantics. It's hardly semantics when someone's eternal estate is at stake. Amen? It's not semantics. I think we need to get it right. So this all started with the instigating principle from our most recent blog. Up here on the board, righteousness implies being right. Once a person understands their depravity, they are set free from the charade of maintaining self-righteousness. In fact, this is why a humble person gladly throws up their arms and asks for deliverance from their Creator out of fear and respect for Him. You could take that and superimpose it on positional sanctification, and you could also use it for experiential sanctification. Right? You could apply that, those two sentences, to either or. 
The fear and respect aspect of the point on the board implies obedience. Therefore, being right implies understanding and agreeing with God about our condition as sinners, even experientially as believers. Doesn't just mean for salvation proper or positional sanctification, but also in the experiential sense. We have to agree with Him. We are blessed when we orient to God's will. We are never blessed by simply assuming it. And that was the blog. We're blessed by actually orienting to His will. We're never blessed by simply assuming it. And it's not merely semantics, you understand? There's simply too much at stake to be making assumptions about one's salvation. Is that fair enough? Don't just assume you're righteous. This is the very reason. Think about this. This is the very reason why the kingdom of darkness perverts the gospel into something emaciated and unchallenging. It's unchallenging. <laughs> it allows that room, it allows you that room to make assumptions. I'm just going to assume I'm unrighteous. I'm just going to assume I'm righteous. I'm just going to assume that little prayer I said in the second grade bought me a ticket to heaven. I'm just going to assume that my grandmother, my religious grandmother, wasn't lying to me, wasn't lost herself. I'm just going to assume all this stuff. I'm going to go out on a limb and say, I don't think we should be assuming anything when it comes to the eternal state. But that's why the kingdom of darkness puts out that gospel that doesn't challenge anybody. Because if it actually challenged someone, if, 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 if people actually realize that believing in the Lord Jesus Christ is a command from the holy, sovereign God of the universe, their creator, they might think twice. Because that's not, the problem is that's not normally how it's presented. Here's a pivotal principle from Sunday's message up here on the board. Only a fool refuses to challenge their own beliefs. That was one of the things I really did like about the gospel reload. And several of you uh, have had the wonderful fortune of starting it over and, and doing it again. It was that it challenged us. And, and I remember teaching on aspects of that series where we looked at Paul, and Paul was never ashamed. He would be talking, or writing, right, or speaking, let's put it that way, to a group of believers on the whole, and then he would be like, are you sure? You sure you got a hold of that salvation? Are you sure now? He never had a problem with challenging people, and therefore we should never have a problem with challenging ourselves or others. Only a fool refuses to challenge it. Doesn't mean you have to lose faith. Doesn't mean you have to live in insecurity. That's not what I'm talking about. Because if you actually are saved, what will the Holy Spirit tell you? You're totally saved. You can challenge them all day long. Am I saved? Yes, you are. Am I saved? Yes, you are. Right? Am I saved? Mm-mm. Uh-oh. What, <laughs> what if you never ask, though? That's the whole point. What if, you know what I'm saying? 
What if you just thought it was like, you know, some semantic? Oh, it doesn't matter. You can go to that church over there that teaches garbage. You can go to this one. They all have a cross on the top, so we're good, right? Kumbaya, my Lord, right? Nobody really knows Jesus. Nobody really knows about the gospel. Nobody even knows it's a command. Nobody knows they're even being disobedient because of disobeying a command. You know what I'm getting at? Nobody knows they're under the wrath of God because they're disobedient. They're sons of disobedience. And they're all just singing about Jesus. Meanwhile, you got this little church teaching the truth, and nobody comes. <laughs> Smattering of people, no offense. Everybody's like, I'm somebody, not you. Right? Where's everybody else? Honestly, where's everybody else? They certainly aren't challenging themselves, I can tell you that. They certainly are not challenging themselves or even their own beliefs. And that, that goes out, and that is dedicated to the so-called Christians in this world. And many of you know them. The ones who say, oh, I'm totally a Christian. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to heaven. I'll see you there. Hmm. On Sunday, we explored this a little further by cementing the fact in our souls regarding the word of truth. The point being that without the word to rely on in our souls, we are essentially lost at sea. As Paul said in Ephesians 4.14, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. That's literally what we just read in Jude. He was just fighting a different animal at the time. Gnosticism. Right? Paul has probably had some other thing in view. Who knows? It's not like it's a novel concept. But without the word of God, you're tossed to and fro, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. You're so easy to pull around, to drag around when you don't have the word. The word, he, the, Jesus is your anchor, right? And Jesus is the Logos. He is the word. Here you go. This is like, you know, put a chain on me, put a chain on the book. Boom, there's my anchor. I ain't going anywhere, right? I'm stuck. Seas can go crazy. I'm right here. I'm staying. No anchor. Who knows where you're going to end up? Shipwreck somewhere. Point is that obedience implies an object. And in this case, it's the Word of God. This is what Jesus teaches us. To obey something is to cling to it, which is tantamount to saying you abide in it. Go to John 15, 7. Right? Jesus teaches this. To obey something is to cling to it. And that is tantamount to saying... You abide in it. You abide in that thing. I cling to it. My tether, I have a chain, right? Here's my anchor. I'm chained to it. That's what it means. I'm tied to it. I obey it. I'm tied to it. That's what obedience should be like for us. We're tied to the truth. We don't want to be tossed around and tricked. John 15, 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done uh, for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Abide my words, abide my love. Here we go again, verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, 
just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, that your joy may be full. Conclusion, to obey Jesus is to love Him and vice versa. To obey Jesus is to love Him and vice versa. In other words, to love Him is to obey Him. That's what He taught us. How do you obey something you don't know? How do you obey, how do you love someone? How do you love the Word when you don't know it? How do you abide in it when you don't know it? How do you obey it when you don't know it? It is impossible. That's the point. You need an object. You need to be tethered to something. You need to be connected to something. That's what he was saying. Connect to me this way. I'm the Word. I'm the bread of life. Cling to me. Obey this. Love me. Same sphere. Now, regarding our ongoing study of family, the Spirit has given us this principle up here on the board, and it relates maximum glory to God as a result of His love being present in a family. If you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. Okay, apply that to a family. You want love to be in your family? What should be right, figuratively speaking, maybe literally, right in the middle of your dinner table? Right in the middle of your gathering place. Not a 70-inch Panasonic television. This. This should be the centerpiece of your living experience in your home. Right? If you want love in your home, this is it. Not that thing. Not that giant sewer pipe. Some of you are like, when is he ever going to get over that? Never. <laughs> never. I will never get over it. Why? Because I know what it is. It's one. Come on, can we just be real? It's like one of the greatest inventions for the kingdom of darkness ever. The only one that I think is superseding it now is the smartphone. Because now you carry around a video, audio, internet-driven device in your pocket everywhere you go. Instagram, YouTube, Facebook. I don't even know. TikTok. Right? All these things. Uh, it's unbelievable. You can watch television now. Netflix, uh, Hulu, Amazon. <coughs> it's unbelievable. You are tethered to this instead of this. What do you spend more time with? Your phone or your Bible? <laughs> Right? And then we're all, we're laughing, but we're idiots. We're laughing at ourselves because we're idiots. And so when we apply this to, the, to the, the Word of God to our families, maximum glory to God is a result of His love being present in a family. This has to be the center of your family. As I mentioned this on Sunday, too, uh, you know, me picking on the television, me doing all that stuff, it's time to get back to the basics. Can we just agree on that? It's time to get back to the basics. I had somebody tell me this this week, too. Like, it's just so freeing. If we, if we get rid of all the garbage, right? And I've said this before. Do an experiment. If you're sick of listening to me, and you're just like, geez, man, what is he? Maybe he's onto something. I don't know. 
do an experiment, right? Literally take the TV off the stand and put it in a closet for a week or two, honestly, and see what happens. Just saying, just throw it out there. And don't say, that's okay, because I got another one down the hall. It's like that E-Trade baby thing. Nobody knows. Nobody. He pulls out a smartphone. Anyways. I'm serious. Try an experiment. Why not? What do you got to lose? I'm just saying. Don't say, well, you don't know because I watch Walter Cronkite. He's dead. <laughs> you don't know. I watch Peter Jennings. I think he's dead too. Right? There's no more good news people anyways. So don't be saying you're watching the news because the news is all garbage. Oh, well, you don't understand. I watch the peanuts. No, you don't. Charles Schultz is dead too. Right? So stop with the excuses how you can't give up your sewer pipe. I bet you if I told you I'd give you a million bucks if you did it for two weeks, you'd say, I'll do it for four. How's that happen? You can give it up for money, but you can't give it up for the truth. You can't give it up to preserve your own soul, your own happiness, your own peace. When the Spirit is teaching to you, this isn't Ed Collins. I'm being silly because you're all going to be like this otherwise. I'm being silly to keep you loose. But the Spirit is using this as a syringe into your soul, and he's implanting, and he's saying, hey, this isn't a joke. Like, this is real. We can laugh about it, and you can make fun of it because you don't really want to get rid of your television. Right? And that's how you deal with it, because you just, <laughs> you know, that's <laughs> just, <laughs> is that funny? No, it's not. And I'm not picking on the television. Anything, I said this on Sunday, I think, anything that takes you away from him, you need to get rid of. Whatever that thing is, we got to get back to the basics. The basics, you know, like before media. Media is not even that old. I don't. I forget what. I think television came out just last century, right? Media is not that old. The internet's really not that old. Smartphones are definitely not that old. All this stuff everybody's so comfortable with now—it's not even that old. We got to get beyond what we think is normal and go back to the basics and say, I need to search out what it used to be like when there weren't all these distractions. I need to go back and try to find out that. Because if you know anything about what the Bible says, we're constantly decaying. We're getting worse. If you put life on a timeline, right, as the Bible says, it gets worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. So what's logic say? If you want to get better, you go this way. Right? Just saying. Try it out. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't think so. And I think he's commissioned me from eternity past to teach the last five minutes of this message so that it could end up in your soul. So you couldn't <laughs> brush it off or laugh it off because it's not funny. We laugh because it's like a nervous laugh. We laugh because we know what the Spirit has to say about it. We know that it's right. And we know that it's righteous. We can't just proclaim righteousness if we're not right. That's the whole point. And you know when you're not right. Amen? Everybody in here knows right from wrong at this point. 
If it doesn't bring glory to God, then guess what? It's not right. What you're doing isn't glorifying God, then it's not right. And it definitely is not righteous. Anyways. You want to talk about TV some more? <laughs> Back to basics. Again, the Bible says that abiding in Christ's love is the same thing as abiding in his word and vice versa. <clears throat> Recall at some point last year during our The Lord is Our Confidence series, we were given the following visual. I think I had drawn it out too, but you can imagine it. John 15, 10, it's, that, it's this thing, remember? Right? It's the bidirectional connectivity between co- obedience and love. And that comprised the sphere. In other words, you can't say you love Christ without being obedient. You can't say you're obedient without loving Christ. They are one and the same. And that's what Jesus has taught us. John 15, 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Same sphere, in other words. This is where we develop this concept of the Bible says that abiding in Christ's love is the same thing as abiding in his word and vice versa. Now, what's really interesting, if you want to elevate your thinking, if you really want to mind blow, right? The underlying reality is that God has eternally abided in his own word and his own love. That's the reality. We think past our own egocentrism. We look eternity past, there was God in that same sphere, the sphere of the word, which is truth, and the sphere of love. He pre-existed mankind. The word, before mankind, love, before mankind, same sphere. We got an invitation to this thing, in other words, that's the point. We have been given the privilege being made his children through his miraculous salvific work to share in this sphere of God. When we abide in this sphere experientially, God is glorified. Hence this point with regards to family up here on the board. Maximum glory to God is the result of his love being present in a family. So we've been being encouraged by the Holy Spirit to pursue then his righteousness through obedience to his word. I mean, if this is the sphere of God, we want to get there, right? I want, I want to be in that sphere. I want to be there experientially. I know I'm going to be there ultimately. I'm saved. I know I'm there positionally. I know I have rightful access to it. But because of the dragging nature of my crummy roommate, I'm not always there experientially. But I want to get there. You want to get there. We want to pursue righteousness which is exclusive to this sphere. So we've been encouraged to pursue this righteousness that way through obedience, or being right, obedience to his word. And this is what true love for God looks like. There is no substitute for obedience. Let's make that clear. There is no substitute for obedience. So here's some words of wisdom up here on the board. Proclamation never constitutes obedience. Action does. Let me let that sink in. Just simply saying something. That doesn't constitute obedience. 
When's the last time you have ever asked a so-called Christian, do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? And they said no. When's the last time you've ever asked one? What's the likelihood that every time you've ever asked that, that person was actually saved? Honestly. In other words, they proclaim something, but it's not true. And Jesus said, you shall know them by their what? <laughs> well, there you go. If you don't have any fruit, Jesus Christ, we just read that earlier, right? They'll know that you're my disciples because you bear this fruit. Your love for me, for starters. Your obedience to me. Didn't we just establish this, right? You can't say you love them if you don't obey them. How do you obey them if you don't know the word of God? If this isn't somewhere in your life. You don't say, oh, I pick it up on a, every so often when I'm down. And I read a few things and I'm, you know. That is not a relationship with the Lord. That's not a thirst for truth. That's not a thirst for him. That's not the fruit that he's talking about. A changed person, think about this. So you, what you're saying is that a person can be miraculously changed, made new, with a new, new creature, made a new creature, with a new heart and a new fervency for the Lord, and somehow they have no regard for this? You're an idiot. You're an idiot, and you're just playing games, and you're, cri you're crippling that person. You're a crutch to that person. You're enabling that person. Do you understand, you understand what the Spirit's saying here right now? You can't say, you can't just proclaim obedience. There has to be fruit. There has to be fruit in your life. One of the wonderful things about actually being a believer is because we actually can see our own fruit. We can say, yes, I can see it. This is how God reminds me that I'm his. Proclamation never constitutes obedience. Action does. Now, that doesn't mean you have to go join Scott down at the docks of Fall River to try to evangelize people. Don't get on some weird works program. You'll know when you have fruit. So I should say that question. That's a fair question. Like, when's the last time you asked, asked somebody who said they're a Christian, and if you asked them, do you believe in Jesus Christ, they said no. They're never going to say no. Every single one of them is going to proclaim, oh, yeah, I believe in Jesus Christ. Every single one of them. And the Bible says, heck, <laughs> a lot of them aren't even saved. So proclamation means nothing. You see? That's what James 2 is all about. Show me your faith without the works. I'll show you my faith by my works. Amen? Hey, what do you think he was talking about? This is literally what he was talking about. Action! Yeah, I know. When we abide in his word, we are obedient. And so... We're almost out of time, but a perfect opportunity for us to abide this way is within the family structure. It's within the family. That's why, honest to God, I don't know about you, but all right, I'll tell you something that I've learned. 51 years. Now, you may disagree with this, but this is my personal experience, okay? 
the unbeliever households that I know are in general happier than the so-called Christian households that are playing pretend. I hear amen back there? Honest to goodness. Hands down, in my experience, unbeliever households versus so-called Christian households. This is a toilet. These people have more morals on average than these ones do. These people are more content on average than these ones are. Do you follow what I'm getting at? It's unbelievable. Family. We have a perfect opportunity within the family to abide in Him, to abide in His love. It's never enough to simply say, oh, I'm a good dad, or you know, I'm a good mom, or I'm a good son or daughter. The proof is in the pudding, as they say, and I think I'm just about out of time. Yep, two minutes. Do you remember our um, lengthy series titled, What is Good? And who gets to define it? Do you remember that? So when a person says, in this abomination called the Christian household, filled with a watered-down gospel and all kinds of mayhem and awfulness and religion and disgustingness and whatever, when they say, oh, I'm a good dad, oh, I'm a good mom, or oh, I'm a good son, whose definition are they using? Whose definition are they using? Because they're certainly not getting it from this. What is good and who gets to define it? And we're out of time, but if you remember, the Spirit had a lot to say about this concept of what is good. The only way we can ever learn it right here. God bless our families. This is where we're blessed in our families. We keep on learning the Word of God. This is the wellspring. All good things come from above. Remember, if you abide in my love, you'll keep my commandments. If you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love. This is a, this, it's, it's amplified in families. Amplified in families. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for allowing us to study your word. Thank you for truth that sets us free. We just ask for your blessings as we take the things we've learned back to the privacy of our own souls, our families, our marriages, our homes, and then out to a world that needs it so desperately. Your will be done, of course. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.